and welcome to this monthly live episode of the Cinephiles Live here, brought to you by the Cinephiles. I am the outlaw, John Roca. That is my co-host, Steve Morris. Steve, how are you? I am very good, and I'm excited to talk with you about that. I'm excited about a whole bunch of stuff today. Yeah, we are, we got a lot to announce today that we are doing here for the show. Uh, we got we're going to talk about the color of money to continue our season of Scorsese. We hope you all who are watching us or maybe trying us out for the first time here, you're like, hey, I like that movie. Let me uh, see what these guys are talking about. Uh, we run a podcast called The Cinephiles, and right now we are a few weeks into our season of Scorsese. We started out with a conversation between Steve and I talking about Martin Scorsese's films and his effect on the uh, cinema landscape. Uh, and then we just finished up Goodfellas. Now we're doing this live show before we jump into Raging Bull. Um, Steve, anything you want to say as we're uh, uh, making our way through the season of Scorsese? Any Any thoughts, any feelings, or any opinions? here before we jump into uh, getting deep into color of money. It's funny. We started the first time we did a season, it was the month of Kane for citizen. Yes. Kane, and, yeah. and it was really just, we thought, Oh, you know, citizen Kane is special. It's different. It's arguably the greatest film ever made. Let's spend a little more time with it. And then this became a tradition of, yeah. and it went from being the month of something to the season of something. <laughs> this went on longer and longer. All right. And what's, it's so great, honestly, because, you know, in a weird way, I've done a film school like multiple times mm -hmm. and this actually spending several months really exploring in a deep way, a single director, yeah. it's film school again for me. Like I just love, I'm just so excited for this opportunity to get to learn all this new stuff and to really, and learning about Scorsese for the last month plus. Wow. Yeah. I mean, just amazing. Yeah, we got so many people hanging out with us too, right off the bat here. Luis uh, Macias, Macias is here, Notorious by Chance, JMB. I knew Wiley was going to be here. This is one of his favorite films. He's talked about it for years. Wayne Edwards is here as well, hanging out. So thank you all so much for hanging out with us. I'm sure more of you will come aboard and the rest of you will listen to it as we put this audio up on the podcast feed as well. And, and Steve is right. So much of what we're um, uh, of what we're enjoying from the season of Scorsese is getting to dive in deep into one of the master filmmakers of our time, who is still currently uh, putting out some uh, fantastic films that are going to get that are getting nominated for Oscars, as we see with Killers of the Flower Moon uh, and uh, numerous other ones over the last few years that we had done, Wolf of Wall Street, what have you. There's plenty of them, and as we said, we just finished up Goodfellas. We had done about an hour and fifteen minute episode on Goodfellas way back at the beginning of the Cinephiles, and we just did a three parter where each of the parts was about an hour and a half to two hours each part. So if you haven't uh, sampled that yet, we encourage you all to go back and take a look at this one, uh, that one rather. But Steve, we also have some announcements before we get into the color of money. Do you want to take it away and let the um, Cinephiles audience know uh, some cool things we are going on for them and for our patrons? Sure. This is absolutely huge. I think this is the kind of the biggest announcement we've had in, in a long time about because we're doing something fundamentally new, which is, as everyone knows who listens to the show, and for those of you who support us, we have been doing Patreon for many years. Yeah. We have a great community of people there. We have so much fun between all of the shorts and the things we release, plus our monthly meetings with the advisory board. And that's been fantastic. And none of that is going to change. Actually, some more stuff is actually going to be added to Patreon. Yeah. So a little bit is going to change. But the but we decided that there was other ways that for people to get some of that special content from Patreon. And so what we are doing is we are officially launching an Apple podcast subscription. Now, some of you might have noticed that some things were popping up in the Apple yeah. podcast feed. We know that Apple Podcasts is the way 
uh, more than half of you get our show. And for some of you, it might not have been convenient to get into Patreon. And how does all that work? Well, now it's one-stop shopping, one click on Apple Podcasts for $4.99 a month or $49.99 a year will get you what is exactly in the $5 tier from Patreon. So that means the biggest things are ad-free versions of the show. Now, and let's let's well stop as, there. Ad-free yeah. versions of the show, meaning you will listen to the show straight with no ads, no uh, stopping the rhythm, no stopping the pace, completely straight. And a lot of you, I know you deal with the ads when you listen to podcasts. This is a way to subscribe so that you don't have to deal with ads anymore. Because you know what? We don't want you to listen to ads if you don't want to. We, I, I don't like listening to ads. Right. You know, so we appreciate they're, they're, the ads support us. Don't get me wrong, but yeah, absolutely. But if you choose to not listen to them, this is a great way to do it. In fact, there's probably four or five podcasts that I pay for the ad-free mm. version because I want to support other podcasters, and this is the easiest way to do that. And not so. What we've had ad-free versions of this show on Patreon for just about a year. Yes, and what we've decided to do is not only will all the new episodes of the Cinephile show up both ad free on both Patreon and on Apple Podcasts, yeah. but we have decided to make the entire catalog available in both places. Now, this wow. is a job. This is not. It's it's going to take us a little bit while a little while. Currently, there are about seventy. Our first seventy episodes are up ad free yeah. on both Apple Podcasts. Well, Apple Podcasts they'll be showing up by the end of the day. All seventy yeah. will be up, and they're also available ad free on Patreon. We're going to be rolling that out over the next couple of months, so that soon our entire catalog will be there, as well as the entire catalog of Cinema File Shorts are going to show up on Apple Podcasts again. This isn't going to happen instantaneously. Right, it's going to take know, some time. Obviously, the Cinephiles has a massive staff of hundreds of people yeah. that are working tirelessly to deliver you this great show. So <laughs> it will take us a little time. Exactly. It's going to take us a little time. But from now on, you're going to have ad-free versions of the show and all the shorts on Patreon, as well as ad-free versions of the show and all of the shorts on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, there you go. Those are massive... Uh, massive announcements to make for the show, trying to make the show even more of a um, uh, fulfilling experience for you all who are devoted listeners, uh, devoted watchers, for those of you who watch our live show, and uh, for those of you who want to uh, get a little bit more bang for your buck. We're trying to make it more attractive and more interesting for people to stay on the Patreon and try out the Patreon and become lifelong supporters of the cinephiles for sure. So uh, very stuff, uh, very great stuff uh, for sure coming here. Uh, all right. Any more announcements before we dive into 1986's The Color of Money, Steve? I actually do. And it's something that I've completely forgotten about. And you and I haven't talked about since we first mentioned it a few weeks ago, but we agreed to it and then haven't actually announced it. I'm going to announce it right now. Please. Which is, this is the season of Scorsese. Yeah. And as part of the season of Scorsese, there is one other Scorsese film we did years ago yeah. that we are going to re-release. And that is part one and two of Taxi Driver. Yeah. John, we talked about it a while ago and then both of us, I think, completely forgot until <laughs> this moment it just popped back into my mind. So this week you will get prob probably sometime today, parts yeah. one and two of Taxi Driver will be re-released just to fill out the season of Scorsese. Yeah, there you go. So. More Scorsese for your buck this week from the Cinephiles for sure. Uh, because we will not have a new episode this week. This is your new episode for the week. Right. And then next week we'll be diving into Raging Bull, which is going to be quite an exploration for sure for both of us, I'm sure. Now coming back to it at much later ages than when we first saw it, or than when it first came out, rather, in 1980. Right. So, Well, speaking of the 1980s, let's dive into this 1986's the color of money. I got a little bit. I'm not going to do the full Steve pre-production. We got a little bit of pre-production here 
This is loosely, very loosely based on the Walter Tevis sequel novel called The Color of Money. He wrote The Hustlers as well, the book that that film was based on. He had written a screenplay for this movie, but in the end, they didn't use the screenplay because it was based on the book. The book is very, very different from the movie, and the movie uh, was uh, the screenplay was written by Richard Price, who some of you may know from a number of projects, including Clockers, The Wire, a number of other things. So a damn good writer here for sure. Uh, and this one uh, came about because Paul Newman sent a copy of the novel to Martin Scorsese. And speaking of Raging Bull, it was Raging Bull that convinced Newman that Scorsese was the right person to tell this story. But a number of people have come out lately and, and or come through the years and spoken about, and I think Scorsese's even confirmed this, that he was he was hired to do this movie, but it was more like uh, a hired hand type approach to the situation. We just had Gareth Edwards uh, named or tapped as the director for Jurassic World, and they're pretty far along on that Jurassic World story. So they just wanted the director to come in to shoot it. And this is essentially what we have here with the color of money. This isn't something that Scorsese was driven to do, as we saw with Killers of the Flower Moon. He was hired. He did it as a favor to Paul Newman. And we get this film here with Paul Newman reprising the role of Fast Eddie Felson, which he had rarely done in his career reprising a role. We bring in Tom Cruise. This is the same year that Top Gun came out, and a lot of people talk about how Tom Cruise went back to shoot some scenes for Top Gun. Well, this was the film he was shooting when he had to leave set to go shoot some scenes uh, for Top Gun to finish off that. Mary Elizabeth, and he plays uh, Vincent uh, woo, 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 Lario, <laughs> and then you have Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio in here as Carmen. She was nominated for Best Supporting Actress for this role. Paul Newman ended up winning Best Actor. You've also got some great uh, character actors in this with Helen Shaver, who plays Paul Newman's love interest in the movie Janelle. John Torturo is in this as Julian. You also have Forrest Whitaker in here, and... Lorraine Bracco's sister, Elizabeth Bracco, is in here in a cameo. Uh, Diane, uh, who is there at the bar when they make the move. So this is an interesting story, Steve, that focuses on Fast Eddie Felson. It's been 25 years since the since the um, events of the first of the Hustler movie. He has not picked up a pool cue in those 25 years. He's now like selling liquor. He's in. He's uh, essentially become the George C. Scott character, Bert, and he is the one investing in these pool sharks. He finds Vincent when Vincent beats Julian and he takes on Vincent and Carmen and it and they go on a bit of a road trip here as he tries to school Vincent how to be good at this. He pulls away from Vincent and they meet up in a final um, uh, pool tournament match there that you find out at the end of the movie that Vincent supposedly threw. And then we end with just the final shot of uh, kind of like the end of Rocky three with two fists coming at each other, but not yeah. knowing who wins. So, what do you? Th what did you think about the movie? Now revisiting it after all this time, uh, almost four decades later since the movie came out. What are your thoughts on this film now? Uh, it's so funny, and I think this. I'm really glad we're having this conversation because mm. I think that it just shows how emotional and personal our responses to movies are. So mm. the way this came about, I knew when we were, you know, jumping into Scorsese, and I was rewatching films. I couldn't rewatch all of them, but I picked right. a few to rewatch. And there was no question in my mind I was going to rewatch Color of Money because back in the day, and I, I think I first saw it on like VHS, and I just went, oh, this is a cool movie, right. you know, and went and, and loved Paul Newman. And when I rewatched it, I got all those nostalgic feels. And yes. while I acknowledge this is not in the top 
10 probably of Scorsese's best films. It's still a film that I have real affection for. And you, you, I knew weren't a big fan of it. And in my brain, I went, you know what? I bet John hasn't seen this in a long time. I know he loves Paul Newman. I, I know he loves kind of comeback stories. I know that he has love for Tom Cruise, although this is Tom Cruise in a very specific place. And I like, I bet John is going to rediscover this movie and just go like, I'm so glad. Well, you know what? This is a lot of fun. And I got a text from you about an hour ago that said that was not what happened. And so, <laughs> and this is the thing is that, as we said, you know, some movies aren't your movie and some movies yeah. that you like for reasons that aren't necessarily because it's just, this is a down and out great film. You like yeah. it for reasons of how it relates to you personally. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Because I mean, 1986 is full of some of my favorite movies that I still go back to and watch now. Obviously, Top Gun, Running Scared. There are a number of them. We'll talk about it later on in the show. But I, I was hoping to like this better because I just remember seeing this and being hyped up to see this sequel because I'd seen uh, The Hustler and been a fan of it. My father was a fan of The Hustler. That's a film that he kind of passed on to me. We watched together. Uh, I had, for a very long time, I had the broken wing syndrome. I was only ever attracted to women with broken wings. So Piper Laurie may have been the beginning of that, maybe seeing that film and falling in love with her character and what happens to her uh, with Fast Eddie Felsen. I had that in me. So I love this movie for so many reasons, the original for so many reasons, and and uh, uh, Paul Newman's uh, portrayal, George C. Scott, one of my favorite actors, seeing all of that, and of course Jackie Gleason, seeing so in him, seeing him in something other than the Honeymooners, I was really impressed with the movie. So the level of excitement, as I was becoming a cinephile here in my teen years, to see this movie was pretty high, but I didn't think it was that great of a film when I saw it back then, and I wasn't the only one. If you remember the documentary from Roger Ebert, Life Itself. It's a there's a section there where you see Ebert and Siskel absolutely tear this movie apart, and it is the one of the rare Scorsese films that they both both gave a thumbs down to. Um, there have been other ones that they separately they've each given a thumbs down to, while the other one give a thumbs up, but this was the only one they've ever given a thumbs down to at the time. So revisiting it this time, okay, I'm an older guy, maybe I'll relate to Fast Eddie a little bit more, maybe I'll like this. Now I'll say this: <laughs> I didn't a hundred percent enjoy the movie. But there are sequences and scenes that I enjoyed. My problem now, and it may be because I'm looking at this back with 20 or looking at it now with 2024 eyes, is I need more character development here. I need more time with these characters. I need more understanding. I don't understand why Fast Eddie, all, why this all of a sudden becomes about Fast Eddie when it's really about Vincent. So there's just a lot of, and it's a weird role for Tom Cruise to take right as top. So this is interesting because he's about to become a superstar. I don't think he'd have done this movie. If this was two years later, I don't think he'd have done this because Vincent is a lead, but it's really about um, Paul Newman's care, Fast Eddie. And I don't know that Tom would necessarily do that at this time. So they caught him at the right time to do this movie. But that being said, I enjoy him in the film. I think there's some really good acting moments from Tom Cruise in the film that people forget that there was a hungry young actor in Tom Cruise way back when. And I think Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio is fantastic as well. It's just that I don't think Fast Eddie is given enough to play with in the script that I think I would have loved to have seen. If he's becoming Bert, let's have some flashbacks. Let's have him confronting himself about whether he's falling into the same patterns as Bert. Does this bring up the uh, uh, the Piper Laurie character for him? Uh, let's explore that. 
what is Vincent doing that uh, it reminds him of him? Why is he being so hard on Vincent? Are there understanding moments where he realizes, oh, yeah, I was the same way. I was just cocksure. I was an idiot. All this kind of stuff. So there's thing, I think there's emotional terrain that is missing here that I would have liked to have seen explored. But it certainly was a little bit of a slog to get through. But it isn't without its moments of acting and writing that I enjoyed. So I think one of the flaws of the film, and I'm and I'll start there before I get into some of the things I like about it, yeah, is the connection, what happened between the end of the hustler to now. Yeah, yeah. Like right. it feels like it doesn't quite fit perfectly to me. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, right. okay, he's become this cynical um kind of hustler of of booze, you know, right. and he's got these relationships, and it's sort of like, okay we get the sense that he hasn't picked up a pool cue. We don't entirely understand like how he can still be in the world, but then he's not playing pool and th it doesn't quite sync up. I think that's yeah. one of the problems I, for me. And, and then the other problem I think is that the third act really becomes a slog. Yes. I, right. Yeah. It becomes like, wait, what, what are we doing here? Why is this? Making well, it is, yeah. Yeah. For, for me, because the third act starts with, uh, which the Forrest Whitaker scene, which is that's the end yeah. of the second act, right? And that scene is phenomenal, yeah. Agreed, and I, agreed, yeah. I think Forrest Whitaker, that is, a, I mean, obviously, that was his star turning role, is yeah. that he is yeah. so he's so much himself, which is what I've always loved about Forrest Whitaker. Yeah. And the scene is so painful, as you realize before Eddie does that he that the hustler is getting hustled, yeah. And then I think uh, Newman's performance at the end of that scene is he's just wrecked mm -hmm. and says, I showed you, I showed him my ass. I think, I think Newman is great. I think that yeah. scene is great. And then you go into the, oh, we're going into the training montage where he's now going to, yeah. he's, he's, he's hit his bottom. We're going into the training montage. And then, and it's really cool for a little while. And then the training montage basically goes on forever. Right. At a certain point, and you're like, okay, what are we building towards? I don't and and even though they do a beautiful job, I think filming the pool and many of the pool games are thrilling and exciting. The yeah. least involving pool games are the ones that we have in the third act. Yeah. You know, they're silent and they're not. And I'm kind of don't know how I feel. Yeah. Until you get to the point, and obviously we're spoiling the whole movie, but oh, yeah. when you get to the point where Vince says, Hey, I dumped the game. And the the painfulness of that, yeah, yeah. And, and 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 let me ask you a question, by the way, because you kind of hinted at it. Yes. Do you think he actually dumped the game on purpose? It's a good question. I certainly was thinking about it after the movie. Um, I do think he dumped it on purpose because I don't think karma would go along with that kind of deception. And that's and that leads to another issue that I have, which we can address a little bit later, is that all of a sudden we have a different relationship between Carmen and Vincent when they show back up in Eddie's life. Now, I'm not saying relationships don't change. Logically, they do. But if you're going to establish a certain relationship so powerfully, walking away from it and not giving us scenes with them as their relationship is changing, I think is a fault of the movie. So that when we have Vincent and Carmen show up with Eddie again, and Vincent's like telling her what to do and is clearly the alpha male now in the relationship where she had been the dominant in the relationship before, I think was a mistake. So that when we see that moment, we can kind of feel for Carmen, understand what Vincent is doing, and then maybe when they go up there to say that they threw the game, you can believe that Carmen is being dragged up there a little bit more rather than going along with it because she chimes in, she says the things that she says. So I do think he, in, in the context of the movie, I think he did throw the game, um, and it was his way of fucking with him. Uh, and I thought it was a, a, such a shock to have that moment because I'd forgotten about that moment, Steve, because it had been so long since I've seen this movie. 
And then it's like, okay, let's meet up in this dank pool hall and go at it one-on-one, but we never see it. So uh, to me, that was such a problem because essentially he castrated him. He castrated the old man who was feeling good about himself again uh, right at the height of his powers to the point that he walked out of a final and and quit. He forfeited the yeah. final because of this shaking confidence. And we that's that to me is another 20 minutes of the movie. If his confidence is shaken at a final, Steve, that's another 20 minutes of the movie. It should be another 20 minutes of him exploring this, taking on Vince, embarrassing him, Vince finding his way back into another tournament, and fast that he's showing up and getting himself to that moment toe-to-toe and 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 going at it over whatever reason, like saying no money's involved. Let's go toe-to-toe to see who's the best. So it's just a weird kind of uh, ending where I was hoping to see something a little more of a oof ending in my opinion. So I want to disagree with one thing that you sure. said. Not not sure. that your interpretation is your interpretation. Right, of course. And, but but why does the question for me is why does Eddie forfeit that match? And mm-hmm. for me, and this is where I think the movie it's like it's got the chess pieces in the generally right place, yes. but it doesn't deliver on them perfectly. Right. And one of the pieces is the lesson that he is teaching Vincent throughout the movie is mm-hmm. is this is all a hustle. You're not here to play the game. You are here to play the hustle. And that means if you lose and end up making more money, that was good. If you win and end up making more money, that's good. You know, it doesn't matter. It's all about the money. And and essentially that there's no, there's no honor of sportsmanship. There's no, there's no, I'm going to be the great competitor. That's not the lesson he's teaching. And in in the end of the movie, when he gets, or in the second act, when he gets schooled by Forrest Whitaker Mm. and he goes through this whole process, he makes a different decision. He has decided, no, I actually want to go be champion. I'm not yeah. doing this for the money. Yeah. And so, so this is why I go back to the moment of him forfeiting. For me, him forfeiting is saying, I can't win under false pretenses. If I if if Vincent dumped the game, then I can't win the tournament because that would be dishonest, which is exactly the opposite of where he was at the beginning of the movie. Right. Like, but I don't think, but the fact that you saw it a different way. Yeah is an exact sign that the of why the movie isn't a great film. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah, because, because it I mean, isn't, it's not it, there, you know. Right, exactly, Steve. And because earlier in the film, he is yelling at Vincent for not going after the guy with a hole in his throat, right? And so why would this same guy be the guy that's like, oh, I'm my confidence is shaking? Because I think that guy would be like, fuck him for throwing it. I'm going to take the money. I'm going to get this victory, and I'm going to be back, buddy. What do I care about this little pissant Vince and the things that he said? Like, uh, like uh, Helen Shaver says to him when she walks when he when he walks out, she says he's such a little prick, and, and that that to me should have been the moment. Like there's sh- there, that's another thing too is like there should be more with him and Janelle. There should absolutely yeah, be me whole more. Like that should have led to a whole scene between them, where she says to him, where he's like, well then what am I if he just kind of threw the game? I, I was riding high. We just had the best sex we've had in 10 years. And I got all this money and a confidence and my, my, I can see now like what the hell he took it all away from me. And then she has to shake him up, you know, and kind of have a Rocky three scene, right? Like be like, snap out of it. When everyone's through chanting fast Eddie, it's just going to be us. So like focus on what happened here and then go and beat him, beat him again, go and get him somehow or something like there should have been something. So maybe in the story, I think there's a mistake in having Vince throw the throw the or say that he threw it because there's there should have been explored a little bit more rather than meeting in some dank hall and ending on a close up on his face. So to me, that's kind of a fault of the film as well. You know, 
Well, it it because you're right. By the way, it is totally a Rocky Three moment. That is exactly yeah. what it is. And the thing is, is and this is what's interesting about films because I agree with you. Yeah. Is that and I like the movie and I have like love for it from the yeah. '80s. But the yeah. but the Which but you're absolutely right about the flaws. Yeah. Um. Is that in Rocky Three, we are not spending the movie anticipating. Who could win in a fight between Rocky and Apollo Creed? Right. We've had two movies to deal with that. That is not, this movie is about Rocky and it's about him conquering his fear and all his senses of insecurity and Apollo is training him. So yeah. when you get to the end and they go ding, ding, and you hit a freeze frame and we don't get to see it, it's totally fine. It's cool. Because, yeah. because we're not waiting for that. Right. But we are waiting for a battle between Vincent and Fast Eddie Felson. We are waiting for that. And we're robbed it because he throws the game and then Scorsese doesn't give it to us. Yeah. And this is where, like, there's a certain things where movies are supposed to not give you what you want because that's what makes them good movies. Yeah. That's what makes them live in your heart. But there are other times where you're, where it's, where it's like, no, we need to see this. This is what the audience wants. Yeah. yeah. What's funny too is that this is not a Scorsese movie, in my opinion. Yeah. Like, it is, tell. it is a, it's a work for hire movie. It's yeah. Scorsese, him taking all of his skill yeah. and delivering it on him trying to make kind of an 80s film. Yeah. And, and him trying to make a Paul Newman film. Right. And so, like, I think it's fun for me to watch him use all his craft to yeah. do that thing. Yeah. But it also is a mismatch, you know, in yeah. terms of the, the story. It feels like a love letter to Paul Newman. Thanks for all the years of all the movies that you've given us. That, that's what it feels like when you're watching the movie. Uh, because, like, Vincent is the story. It is not Fast Eddie Phils. It's very clear that Fast Eddie finds Vincent. And he's got to teach him the ropes, right? This is what it's all about. Let me teach you the. And it's very, it's very meta because this is also Tom Cruise becoming a superstar, right. right at the beginning, right? And so it's Paul Newman who's been the superstar for many, many years, handing the torch over to the young buck and giving him guidance, right? There's even a meta moment with Forrest Whitaker at the end of that scene because Forrest is great, as you said, man. The so back good. and forth, and he's like, "Oh, I just got the psych ward or whatever the things he says." And then when he schools him over and over again, at the end, he says to him, do you think I need to lose weight? And I wonder if that's Forrest saying that as an actor in the 1980s, because I'm sure agents and managers told him, hey, man, you have to lose weight or whatever. So having that, and that happens all the time, trust me, it happens to men as well in the acting profession. So having that happen, um, I thought was a really interesting moment. So in a way, the film is at an interesting time in 1986 when we're having this transition of new superstars coming uh, to take the mantle of the older superstars who made their bones in the late 60s and the 70s. And we see that with the young crop and Tom Cruise. So I thought there was, a, and, and in fact, during the production of the movie, uh, Paul takes him under his wing and they go and he turns him on to cars uh, during this time. Mm. Paul was a big racing guy. And so that was a, a, a connection that they had for many, many years together. I, I remember seeing photos and stuff uh, throughout. So yeah, so there's there's an element to that as you're watching, which is why I think the film ends with the close-up on Paul Newman, so that all the older audience that grew up loving Paul Newman can feel that kind of stroke of love for Paul Newman. And I'm sure that's what led to him winning the Best Actor Oscar, even though he'd been giving an given an honorary Oscar the year before. So yeah, go ahead, Steve. Well, I was just going to say, is yeah. this the only time that Scorsese worked with movie stars? Like, because Paul Newman and Tom Cruise, I, you and I have said many times, obviously, we, they're both great actors. Yeah. But they are also movie stars. They are the biggest star of their time. Yeah. Robert De Niro right. obviously is a star, 
Right. But he's not a movie star in the way that Tom Cruise is a movie star or it's Paul Newman. Time. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, he's a great actor who becomes a star. Yeah, most of his career, I guess, Leonardo DiCaprio is a movie star. I guess who he's a movie star who doesn't want to be one. Really, <laughs> is what he is. Um, I, I, it's it's such an interesting thing because the I think the where the movie is at its best is where it's the three of them on the road trip. Like that's yeah, yeah. Let's talk. That's about worse. Yeah. And particularly Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, she yeah. is so good in the movie and i i love the dynamic of because it's a con movie too is that he's conning them yeah by the thing with the drink at the bar and when's the guy gonna leave and she she like under she can see what he is from where she is vincent yeah. doesn't understand at all yeah, yeah and then they work together to con to manipulate vincent right and and again this is where i go the bones are good the idea that yeah. we've switched places by the end and that Vincent is the hard-nosed con artist yeah. and she is feeling remorse about it. I think that's really interesting, but I agree with you. We don't see the flip or exactly why it happens. I also yeah. love, by the way, the, the way Vincent sees Eddie, he clearly doesn't have a father figure in his life and he's no, he desperate for a father figure right. and sees Eddie as a father figure. And I love the generational sort of, Eddie's not comfortable with the, when he goes to give him a hug and all that stuff. I love all that stuff. I think it works really well. Yeah, no, I agree. The chemistry with the three of them is really nice to see in the movie. And certainly three, as, as we said with Tom Cruise at the beginning of his superstardom, but you have Mary Elizabeth Mastro Antonio coming in her own, into her own as well as an actress. Remember, we're like, what, two years away from Abyss, the Abyss, where she's really shy. Right. Uh, she, you know, she got nominated for this performance. She had been in Scarface just a few years earlier with a memorable performance as Gina. Uh, and she's done a number of things, still working today. I always love when she pops up and stuff because she is a very solid actress that, in my opinion, never got the credit and the um, love and the praise that she deserved because she is a stellar fucking actress, just a stellar actress. Uh, and so, yeah, and so seeing her go toe-to-toe -to -toe with a legend like Paul Newman, especially that scene where she's explaining how her and Vince met, right, how they uh, he was she was driving the car for her ex-boyfriend who broke into Vincent's parents' houses, house rather, and um, Vince let her keep her mom's necklace, you know, these things. So I like that you've got this, that she's got this confidence uh, to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Paul, and it's believable. And toe-to-toe -to -toe with uh, with Vincent as well in the, in the early stages with her and Tom Cruise. She's not, you know, he's the one that's aggressive physically. He's the one that's all over her physically. She's not necessarily wanting to do PDA or wanting to do these kinds of things. She's a woman who's got a lot of intelligence in the situation. So as I said, I think there's more here that could have been explored character-wise because I also think she gets short-shifted by the, by the, short by the movie because they kind of push her aside when it's necessary. Hey, uh, why don't you go take a cab because this is a CD pool hall and get on out of here instead of letting her be there, letting her deal with that, letting her hold her own. It's that old school um, sexism from back then that is, that is um, supposedly... Uh, what do you call it? Uh, I forget the term. I, I forget words now at my age, but like uh, where you, you take care of a woman, make sure she's okay. That kind of thing. It's, it's that kind of chivalry. Thing. Chivalry, right. It's with Paul Newman's point of view or fast Eddie's point of view, it's chivalry. Uh, and I think it's, I think she should have been, I think if this movie is made now, she stays in that pool hole and she deals with whatever the ramifications of it are. I also thought showing her nude was unnecessary. Showing her in the panties was unnecessary, but that's 1980s, right? And when you're seeing that in the 1980s, but that also shows her, shows you that she has like, she doesn't care about that kind of stuff. She's very clear about like, she owns her space. So when we see the change, 
it's kind of jarring. And I liken yeah. it to Maestro. When you watch Maestro, the changes in the relationship between Leonard Bernstein and his wife, they're played by Carrie Mulligan, Bradley Cooper, Carrie Mulligan. It's frustrating that, okay, the, the relationship has changed. We've jumped a few years. This is how the relationship is now. Well, how did we get here? Okay, we jumped a few years. The relationship is, how did we get here? So to me, as you said, and stressed to my point from earlier, would have liked to have seen more with them because the three of them is great chemistry. Would like to have seen more in the progression of their relationships throughout, and some scenes that are just Vincent and Mary Elizabeth, or and I uh, forget, I forget her, the actress or the uh, character's Carmen. name, huh? Carmen. Yeah, uh, Carmen. Vincent and Carmen. I would have loved some more Vincent and Carmen scenes to flesh out the story more uh, in this uh, situation. You know, um, I want to just uh, talk about the the nudity moment because I just think yeah. it's really interesting, and it's the kind of scene that you know most people aren't going to put in films today, but. What I actually think is going on is that I think she has in the past used her sexuality to put men off their guard and to put them off balance. And I think she is consciously Eddie doing says that, that. If you're going to use yeah. that, use it right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Yeah, because and, and and I think that what I like about it is that it's not is that this thing that she goes to to have some power over Eddie Felsen isn't going to work. You know, right. like he, that's, he teaches her something and yes, it's, he's rough with her physically and like, we mm. can, you know, go into that too. But like, he goes, no, no, that's not what our relationship is going to be. Yeah, yeah. And, and as you said, if you're going to use that, use it right. Yeah. You know? Right. right. Um, yeah. I think it, it, it's just, well, and it goes to something we said many, many times is like, yeah. some people are going to like this movie. Some people are not, yeah. but what it does show is movies are really, really hard to make, yeah. you know? Like you got, there's no end of the talented people working on this movie. The the soundtrack from Robbie Robertson, who I didn't know was living with Martin Scorsese until we <laughs> did some more research. I, right. I love, like the songs are great. I mean, it's in the way that you use it gets overplayed at a certain yeah. point where you're just like, okay, come on. I've heard this song enough. <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, Werewolves of London and all those things are yeah. great. Tom Cruise is going full on in a way that I think mostly works and sometimes doesn't. I can't take my eyes off of Paul Newman. Like there's yeah. so many good things in it, but it doesn't all fit together. The person, you know, who I'd love to talk to about this is Thelma Schoonmaker. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, what because she knows the answer, you yeah. know, like, well, yeah. this is why we made this choice. And this is why we, this is, this is this moment that didn't quite work. And this is how we adjusted to it. You know, I'd love to hear that conversation. Well, Scorsese talks about how he, and it's interesting. Cause like we, we, we've said a number of times that he's been, he was a hired hand for this movie. Uh, and he has said that himself, but this is interesting stuff that he said he, he focused on the close-ups that we see in the film. He was using black narcissus as the motivation, that classic film as the motivation for the close-ups in this movie. So I'm like, you're even bringing in like black narcissus to make this movie is an interesting approach uh, overall here from Martin Scorsese. I thought that was fantastic to see. Um, we had some real, uh, do you remember those old Bud Light commercials? Uh, or was it Miller Light commercials rather? You know, less filling, great taste or whatever. Oh, sure. Yeah. So the the guy that plays, is it Duke at the that has the match with um, fast Eddie when he says, I didn't deserve that. I don't deserve that. Um, I don't remember his name, but I love, I love the, the, yeah, yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did. Exactly. Well, that's actually Steve, uh, Steve Miserac, who was a very well-known pool player. And he uh. was in those commercials because he was kind of known at the time uh. because what happened in 1961, when the hustler came out, pool became massive, like pool, right. like the, the selling of the pool tables, pool cues, opening of pool halls, that became massive. I mean, where I grew up, 
in uh, Northern Virginia in a small town in Dale City at the time, small town. We had two pool halls, one in Woodbridge uh, and one a, a little bit further out, I think in Manassas. They were massive. And I remember going uh, to play after I'd seen The Hustler going to play and trying it out and whatever. And apparently when this film came out, it exploded all over again, you know? So it became something that was a big deal for a lot of people. I don't think it's as well-known now, obviously, um, as it was back then, but that was a huge deal. So, hey, there was like three or four actual pool champions that were used throughout the movie, which I thought was a nice way to add some authenticity in this one as well. Two, two, two things. One is yeah. it just occurred to me that pool is probably in deep shit in today's world because kids have screens. Like I yeah. just the next generation, yeah. they're not going to go out and play pool. And but and I was going to ask you yeah. is uh, how's your pool game? Did you play? Did you play a bunch <laughs> in this era? I love playing. I am not good at pool, but I love playing. Um, and, and when I was in the military, we had a pool hall. We had a pool table there in the barracks. So when I we would play all the time when I was there when I was younger, and then occasionally when I was doing my service um, uh, in Maryland at Fort Meade, we'd play as well. So yeah, I mean, I I enjoy playing it. But I'm certainly not, uh, as I would say, good at playing pool. I couldn't, I couldn't hustle anybody at this stage of my life. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm not. I, there was an era. It really is this era. It's like '86 yeah, yeah. through like '91 or '92. Right. I played a fair amount of pool. You know, we played eight ball. Karen's dad, by the way, he was really good. Like, he oh really? Oh wow. Yeah, he was. He was really good at pool. But like, no, I, I I'm streaky. <laughs> like every once in a while, you know, it's like it's like when you're bowling and you hit a few strikes in a row, and you're like, "This is this seems easy. I should have to do that again." Like there are moments playing pool where I'd be like, times, you know, yeah. sink three balls or four balls in a row, and I'm like, "I'm good at this," and then I can't <laughs> sink a ball for like three hours. Yeah, like you're in that game when you're playing someone else who's playing just as badly as you, and you're like, "How can we get out of this game? Like, can someone please like end the game? <laughs> Come on, just sink the eight ball. Let's go. Come on." <laughs> That's true. So true. Um, what do you think of John Turturro being a part of this as well? I thought it was fun. Little little shades of rounders. I mean, the whole film has shades of rounders. I would not I be surprised if this film didn't influence rounders, don't you think? I totally think it does. It's funny because I just, you know, we're prepping for Raging Bull. Yeah. John Turturro's very first time on a movie set is in Raging Bull, which I had no memory that oh, he was I in that know. at all. Oh, wow. And he doesn't have a line. He's just like, you can see him in one shot. Mm. I think John Tatour, both him and Forrest Whitaker, it's like, these are signs of things to come. Mm -hmm. Like, you just see that these two guys are yeah. special, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I enjoyed seeing that as well. His family's in the movie. Scorsese's his parent. When Fast Eddie wins that first game back after he's gotten the glasses, and of course he's got him sunglasses, of course. Um. It's his dad. Of course, it's his dad who shakes his hand. And the mom, oh. Catherine Scorsese, is right there in the background. And as I mentioned, we get um, Lorraine Bracco's sister in this film. So I wonder if that's, you know, how how long ago did he know the Bracco's to mm. consider Lorraine for Goodfellas just four years later? I wonder about that. You know what I'm saying? And the guy who's well, at the... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, we I found out, which I didn't know when we were doing research for Goodfellas, yeah. is that she was dating Harvey Keitel. And that Lorraine she had come in, oh, right. and she had come in to audition for After Hours, mm. and he had said, "I'm not going to cast you, but you were really good. I'm sure we'll work together at some point." So obviously, they've been around each other a bunch right. before Goodfellas. And known the Broncos for a bunch for sure. Um, let's see, <laughs> <laughs> what did I? What else do we want to discuss? Is there anything else we wanted to bring up about the movie? I mean, I haven't even asked people to send in Streamlabs or, or super chats or anything. So, but there is one from Wiley Todd. Wow, Wiley, thank you, Wiley. 
It said, thank you guys so much for doing this. It means so much to me. I got to know your take on the bathroom scene with Fast Eddie and Carmen. Yeah, um, Steve, your thoughts on that uh, scene with Fast Eddie and Carmen there in the bathroom? And I, I think we touched on it, right? You already this, of, if, if this is the, yeah. If this is the nudity scene, I feel like we kind of discussed it. Yeah. I, and, and, and I do think also you are right. There was times where female nudity in the 80s was just like a prerequisite. You know what I mean? Like yeah, that you yeah. were just... And, and, and as a, as a person who was a teenager in the eighties and there was not the sure. internet of pornography, this was a great thing to have. And right. looking at it now, I go, Oh, this is weird, but I'll, I'll stand by what I said. I think unlike some other stuff where it was just gratuitous, there was no reason whatsoever for the movie to show it. Yeah. In this case, I think it was, I think they didn't, I think they blew it on her character in the long run, as you pointed out, yeah. is that. But I think this is very interesting character motivation, and I would have liked to see her character, who she became. You know what? I, and I think this is a real problem with the film is that we're so focused on Eddie and Vincent yeah. that we just lose her entirely. This is actually a three-hander. It's not a two-hander. Right. You know, and so her journey just kind of gets cut off, it feels yeah. like. These are quizzical things sometimes in Scorsese films. And I'm not saying he's bad with female characters. Clearly, Karen is one of the best characters ever on film from Goodfellas. But like even Sybil Shepherd gets a little lost in Taxi Driver when it becomes the focus of Travis Bickle. Uh, and Travis Sybil Shepherd has a very interesting life that she's living that would have been fun to explore and interesting to explore as well. I feel like that happens in Killers of the Flower Moon with Lily Gladstone. We get we get a great first hour, hour and a half with her, and then he drugs her for a majority of the movie to that last scene with him and um, with her rather and and DiCaprio where she finally calls him out with all the for all the shit he's been doing. So it's just so, these are quizzical decisions that Scorsese makes sometimes. You're like, well. Well, I get you're a male filmmaker. You're overtly male filmmaker. This is why men like your movies so much. But I would have liked to have seen more uh, fleshing out, as, we, as you had stated, we had stated already, of, of Carmen's character and seeing more from her and see more from, I think it's Janelle, who, uh, the character who plays his girlfriend. Because, like, I saw some review in the now, I read a review here in the RogerEbert.com. This is a reviewer went back. Obviously, Roger has passed on, but this reviewer went back rewatched the film and talked about it and he said fast eddie has learned all the lessons from the first movie and i'm like no he hasn't he hasn't he goes he's treating women better i'm like no he isn't he lies to her about the bahamas he um you know uses that other girl that's a friend of his so that he can hook vince on the line uh he's not a guy who is good at treating women well and so and and we know more of that if we had fleshed out that storyline a bit more between them and saw more of their relationship and how it all played out. So I don't think that's a hundred percent accurate uh, when I look at the movie myself. So, so yeah. I think again, it's what, where's the intention and where are the bones as opposed to what it delivers on is I right. think it's to me, it's really clear that fast Eddie, when we meet him is in a state of arrested development. He never mm. grew up right. past the hustler, mm. you know, which isn't exactly how the hustler ends, you know, like I haven't watched that in a while, but it, mm. it, the hustler's ending is a, is more complicated than that. But like he, yeah. he is not grown up and that the idea of this movie is getting beat by Forrest Whitaker. He hits his bottom. Right. And then I think going forward, he, he does grow up and I think he is going to move in with her and he is going to take her to Bahamas and he is going to do all those things. Yes. Like I think he is, he's become a grown up by the end of the film, but it doesn't a hundred percent deliver, you know, in the course of it, like is how I would put it. Yeah, and that's my question, Steve. Because like, I would say to you, yes, if he had authentically beaten Vincent, and we had ended with him like feeling good and winning the title, 
because now he's proven that he can come back out on top. And now he can go on and put that to bed like Rocky three, right? Once it's over, you know, but once it's done, it's done, get rid of it. Right. And I think that's where it could have ended with him winning the, the tournament, Vincent and Carmen looking on Vincent and Carmen are going to go there, or maybe they break up at that tournament because of something that happens. And Vincent is left on his own to do his own thing, but he's going to, um, he's stubborn and he's going to do his own thing. And then Fast Eight is going to move on with Janelle and they're going to build a life and whatever. But the fact that he doesn't get that satisfaction and still ends up in that pool hall, I think um, is confusing for me to see if he's really grown out of these tendencies that he was supposed to be growing out of. Again, if there is a seam between him and Janelle and she says to him, go play him, but once it's done, you come back to me and it's over. And you believe that Eddie, when he says, yes, 100%, I just need to do this one thing. And you now you're on board with it, and you're behind Eddie as he takes on Vincent. I think that would have been a, a way that would have really solidified the fact that he had grown, in my opinion. You, you, I was trying to think of like how you would do. What is the final battle about? Like if yeah. if we actually were to show the game, like what would be satisfying? Because it isn't just. I don't think the the point of the movie isn't who is the better pool player, right? You know no. what I mean? Like uh, that's not that's not what the point of the movie is. Right. And so I suddenly went, what if we do play the game? But somewhere in the game is if Eddie throws the game, mm -hmm. he makes a hundred, the huge score, huge, yes. huge score. Yes. And we watching it don't know what he's going to do. Yeah. And in the end, he doesn't throw the game. He wins the game and it costs him a hundred thousand dollars or something like that. Right, it just right. costs him everything, but he gets his soul back. Right. You know? For once it wasn't about money. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. That's a great point, Steve. For sure. I think Wiley's chiming in saying the, the scene in the battle where he's aggressive with Carmen. What do we think about that? Well, I would say that it fits in the in the in the um construct of the film because these aren't like high-end people. Okay. You're not gonna find a lot of noble people who are working the hustling life, you know. So they're gonna be aggressive. They're gonna have moments with each other that are physically aggressive because it's a it's a high stakes existence in terms of like I've got to make this score, I've got to make this work so I can eat for the next two months. Do you know what I'm saying? So for him to be aggressive with Carmen, I think fits in the realm and the construct of the movie. He's also an old man who's losing his mojo or has lost his mojo in his mind. So the the desire to resort re revert to a physical moment. Um, and is not, how can I say it is understandable. I'm not saying I validate or accept it, but I'm saying it's understandable in the construct of the film. So yeah, I didn't mind it. What did you think about it, Steve? I, I really think that, you know, like we, we put such like light, uh, politically or whatever on, yeah. on the behavior of characters in a film. Yeah. These yeah, are yeah characters yeah. in a film, you know what I mean? And it's like, is it, the question for me is, is what happens motivatable for these characters and right. does it does it work for the dramatics of the story? And for me, it totally does. Hmm. This does not mean that I think that it's cool for guys to beat up on women who are smaller than them. Right. That's not the point. Right. The point is, is that she, frankly, by clearly and specifically exposing herself naked to him in the, in the earlier scene. Yes. And then clearly answering the door in this outfit, she is actually being aggressive with him. Right. She is trying to mess with him yes. by using her sexuality and he gets aggressive back. He doesn't hurt her, but no, he goes, right. no, this is not acceptable. I think, again, I don't think these are behaviors that I th would recommend to people, right. but I do think these are behaviors that work for the characters in the film.
Yeah, yeah, good point. Um, let's see, we've got a stream, a super chat rather that came through here. Let me bring it up on the screen uh, so we can read it together. Carlton Rutter, hey Carlton, good to see you. Says sending much love and support to you both from the UK. The only pool I'm good at is blue and wet. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> Amazing show. Every episode is a watch, uh, is a must must watch and listen. Thanks so much. Uh, Thank you, Carlton. Yeah. And I actually, uh, Adam in the chat. Oh yeah reminded me that he had posted a question on patreon which oh, thank please. you adam i had it had yeah. slipped my mind it was in my inbox and i did not go back to it so thank you for the reminder uh and adam writes hey guys enjoying the season of scorsese so far non-scorsese question with which non-scorsese question which paul newman portrayal of fast eddie felson would you give the edge to the hustler or the color of money i may have to give the edge to the hustler also which critically acclaimed film would you like to see get a legacy sequel film like the color of money for instance creed being a legacy sequel film from mm -hmm. stallone getting an oscar and top gun maverick for tom cruise i would like to see a dream sequel to goodwill hunting to honor robin williams and have matt damon as the teacher mentoring a young dominic sesa with affleck directing that's a fascinating idea thanks for all you do so john starting with which portrayal of fast eddie oh the first one uh the hustler no, nothing against this Eddie, but I like the hustler Eddie more than this Eddie here in this movie. So I, I would go with the hustler portrayal more. I, I, I mean, there's no question, but part of it is there's no question between the two movies, right? You know, obviously. like the, the hustler is a great film. The color of money is a film that I love. Yeah. What I'll say about it is if I want to watch Paul Newman, just being pa cool, Paul Newman, the color of money, right? If I want to watch the greater performance, the yeah. greater character of fast Eddie Felson and who that person is, the hustler, obviously. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's what I default to. Um, okay, what's the second part of the question? The legacy sequel, John. <sighs> I wish I had, I should have sent to this to you earlier, and I wish yeah. I had read it earlier because no, it's going to take some time to think about it. It's a really good idea. I mean, I love the idea of. I mean, I Top Gun Maverick was my legacy. That was something that I never ever thought would happen, and the fact that it did, and arguably is better than the original, which is a re even more of a rarity. Um, I thought was fantastic. Um, if you had cast any real actors who are part of Hoosiers, would have been interesting to see a legacy sequel. The Hoosiers, one of those guys, goes back to a, co a, a college, a small college, or a or or a small town, and it's all black players, and he has to kind of t uh, teach them the game of basketball. I think would be really interesting through Normandale. So they already have their talent and abilities, but he's giving them a different approach as well. I thought that could be like the white shadow, which I loved in the 1970s. So that could be an interesting approach as a legacy sequel. Um, Chet, I don't know if I have a lot that are in my head uh, overall. What about you, Steve? Anything that jumps to mind in your, in your so head? I, I'm really struggling to come up with something, but mm. what I think actually, Adam, is this is a fantastic conversation for a cinephile short Ooh, where, yes. where John and I have a little bit more time to think about it ahead yes. of time. Right. And I think this is also a good time to recommend both now our patreon.com slash the cinephiles way of supporting the show and on Apple podcasts, our new subscription, because when we record this new short, it yeah. is going to show up in both places and you can hear an extended conversation about us going into, I love this idea of a legacy sequel. What yeah. do you think about his Goodwill hunting sequel? Oh, I love that idea. Uh, especially considering how they just had a very funny Dunkin' Donuts commercial together, <laughs> which was stellar. Um, I think it'd be interesting to see him. Dominic, Dominic Sessa is a great choice. Uh, because of what he did in um, in uh, um, the holdovers, 
So as a young actor, getting him into that sequence and or getting him into that situation and seeing what he can do with it, I thought I think that would be very fun to see, especially under Affleck's direction, who I think is a fantastic director. So yeah, hundred percent agreed. Would be very agreed. interesting. To see, yeah, yeah. But what's Will doing? Is Mini Driver? Is he still married to Mini Driver? Oh, I would imagine not. I would imagine oh. not. Right. Well, <laughs> we already going in different directions. <laughs> I think I well this is well and this this is the problem with this idea yeah. of a legacy sequel. The problem is, is that the way movies end, yeah, we have an impression in our head of what the future is. And the impression yes. right. in the head, in your head about the future for Will Hunting is that everything's going to be okay. And he's going to have a great relationship with Mini right. Driver. You know what I mean? Like you don't, you go, which doesn't make any sense at all. Like Robin Williams goes, it's not your fault. Gives him a hug. And all of the problems for this really fucked up guy are apparently solved. And he's cool and he's going to welcome true. love into his life. He's going to be okay. True. If you come back and he's still fucked up, you have betrayed the earlier movie. Oh, yeah. But if Good he point. is not fucked up, what is the movie about? You yeah. know, that yeah. sort of gets hard. That's an excellent point you bring up, Steve, for sure. Um, let's see if we got any more Streamlabs or Super Chats. Uh, no. Let's take a quick break because I know we know we like to put in uh, ads in these uh, moments here, Steve. Let's take a quick break and then we'll get into a final conversation about 1986 and Paul Newman's uh, victory here as the best actor at the Academy Awards right after this. All right, let's get to it here, Steve. I mean, uh, Paul Newman wins best actor in 1986. As I said, he'd won uh he had gotten an honorary Oscar the year before. And I went down a little bit of a wormhole here for um, uh, Oscars. And I reached out to Steve and I was like, Steve, you know, it'd be fun to talk about in this conversation is who else was nominated uh, from that year and what other um, performances that we think uh, would have been or should have been merited to be in the conversation um, for these awards in 1986, uh, and just mentioned, let's you know, let's look at some of these 1986 films and see where we would go with it. Because I personally don't think I would give Best Picture to Platoon right off the bat here. Looking at the nominees: Children of Lesser God, Hannah and Her Sisters, The Mission, Room with a View, and Platoon. So, um, what are your thoughts here as we look at 1986 and we look at Paul Newman, who was nominated against Dexter Gord for Around Midnight, Bob Hoskins for Mona Lisa. William Hurt for Children of a Lesser God, which is a movie I really want to do on the show, and James Woods for Salvador. So, first of all, I was really glad you suggested this because I went and looked at '86, and man, that is a that's a formative year for me. Yeah. I mean, it's the year I graduated high school. I saw many of these movies in the theater. Yeah. Um, starting with Paul Newman, it's weird. You know, he just got the Lifetime Achievement Oscar, and then he gets the Capper on Your Career Oscar. Right. I mean, you know, right. like, again, just as I wouldn't list this in my top five and name and probably not my top 10 Scorsese films, this yeah. is not in my top five or top 10 Newman performances. Mm, you know, okay. you could list tons of Newman performances and we just talked about the hustler, but yeah, you know, he's better in the sting. He's better in Butch Cassidy. He's yeah. HUD Exodus. There's all sorts of performances that he gave interesting performances. This right. is not one of them for, I'll tell you, which, but what's funny, though, is that I don't think this is the strongest group of Best Actor nominees. Obviously, William Hurt yeah. uh, for Children of Lesser God is the one that stands out. I saw Salvador. I have no memory of it. I remember yeah. James Woods being great in it. Yeah. Um, Mona Lisa and, you know, Brown Men are fine. I was, I was looking at some of the other movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, first of all, how is Gene Hackman not nominated? A hundred percent. How is Hoosiers not nominated for Best Picture? It's mind-blowing. How's Gene Hackman not nominated for Best Actor? I agree with you. It's either him or William Hurt, in my opinion. 
that I would have given the Oscar to, no offense to the great Paul Newman, but I would have done that in this sequence. So I agree with you, brother. Why is he missing? Yeah. Well, and I'll throw another actor in there that would never have probably never have gotten nominated and would never have won, but might be my favorite performance of the year. And that is Matthew Broderick in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. That Great is a fantastic yes. performance. Mm -hmm. What about um, what about Dennis Hopper in My Blue Velvet? I don't think he's nominated for Best Supporting Actor either. So it's an interesting year. That's a great choice, Steve, Ferris Bueller. Because, I mean, uh, Matthew Broderick, because that's a great movie that is built on his performance throughout. And it's not just him being cool. There are really legitimately vulnerable moments and honest moments uh, in that movie as well. And there's no one else in the world that could play that part. You know what I yeah, mean? Like he, yeah. he is. And the thing too, is it's totally different from anything else. Gene right. Hackman. And again, I would probably give it to Gene Hackman for Hoosiers. That would probably be my call yeah. for this. But Gene Hackman gives a performance like a lot of Gene Hackman performances, which right. is great because right. Gene Hackman is great. Whereas yeah. there's nothing in the world like Ferris Bueller for me. That's actually an excellent point. Uh, yeah. I feel like they should have been nominated. You could look at Gary Oldman and Sid and Nancy his portrayal of Sid Vicious, it is incredible. So to me, those are the nominees I would put in there. I would probably, unfortunately, move out Dexter Gordon. I would probably move out James Woods uh, and, and replace them with those three uh, right off the bat looking at it um, as I look at it. Would, uh, <laughs> it I, I, and outside, I would give Clint Eastwood uh, a look for Heartbreak Ridge. Now, Heartbreak Ridge is one of those things like for you with color, like with color money, like, I love Heartbreak Ridge. I see all of its flaws, yet I think it features one of the most underappreciated performances of Clint Eastwood's career uh, in that film. You know that he is—he is a drunk, former, um, former um, cocksure marine who is now confronting middle age, uh, and it is an incredible performance from him as he's trying to uh, toughen up these um, recruit these marines who have fallen out of favor because they're undisciplined, but right before they go into the battle at Grenada. And I thought it, it's an excellent film and he does a wonderful job. I mean, there's a, there's drunk scene with him that is really touching from Clint Eastwood. There's some interesting moments of vulnerability from Clint Eastwood in that movie. And so like as a dark horse, I would have considered him for a best actor off of that performance in the movie. Uh, it's funny. I haven't seen it in a really long time. Mm. It's in that weird era because there's Platoon that year. There's, we've got, I think Full Metal Jacket might be the next year. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Like there's all these sort of kind of war movies. And I think Heartbreak Ridge is the one that got lost the most, you right, know? Right. I agree with you in my memory. Again, it's been a long time since I saw it. Yeah. It's a, it's a great vulnerable performance from Eastwood. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to bring it the other thing, just yeah. looking at 1986, because, you know, yeah. you brought it up and I was just like, well, what are some of the movies? Is that the number of movies that I'm not saying are great films, but right. films that went into the rotation that we would watch them over and over again on yeah. VHS yeah. Um, is so high. Yeah. So there's like Aliens. That is a great film. That obviously. should be Best Picture nomination, for God's sakes. Uh, yeah. But then we also have like Manhunter, The Fly, mm. obviously Top Gun. We have um, uh, uh, Highlander. We have, I think, <laughs> Big Trouble in Little China is that year. It is. We it have, is. Well, raw deal, <laughs> terrible, no. terrible film, but I watched it a lot in the late eighties because it was on VHS. Oh, God, like those are just like, and again, it's the year I graduated high school. Yeah. Like yeah. those movies, good or bad, take a special or FX, like yeah, FX, FX watched all the time in that era. I'm going to throw a few out. If you don't mind me going through the list here. Um, yeah. 
Iron Eagle. I really I love Iron Eagle. Eagle. The Best of Times. Robin Williams trying to oh right trying to catch that ball because he dropped it in high school and he thinks his life would have been different if he caught that winning pass. So he gets him and Kurt Russell get all the old football guys together to play the rival school and all the old guys from that rival school get together and they create a football game on the same field and it becomes a commentary on how you have to let go of of, of failures in right. your past and not be defined by them. So it's such an interesting movie uh, amidst uh, amidst these films. Quicksilver, one of my favorites from from um, from uh, Kevin Bacon, which is also features a damn good uh, soundtrack. Wildcats is this year. Goldie Hawn as a female yeah. football coach of a, I think, a, a, a high school there or a junior college with a, a bevy of fantastic actors in the film. Woody Harrelson, Isai Morales, I think Lawrence Fishburne Jr. is in this as well. So an interesting film. Uh, Pretty in Pink is this year oh. as well. One of the best of the of the Hughes movies as well. Gung Ho. People love Gung Ho, uh, the Michael Keaton film. Transformers, the animated movie, is oh. this year as well. Uh, At Close Range, which is, the, which is the beginning of Sean Penn becoming like this really powerful actor uh, as well uh, throughout this year, which I think is one of my favorite ones. From 1986, obviously Top Gun. Oh God, Cobra. Oof. Yeah, let me, let me move past Cobra real quick. You're right about favorite. Back to School, which is a film we have considered numerous times, but not sure if we're ever going to do because of some of the uncomfortable moments in that movie. But that's another good one from this year as well. Karate Kid Part Two. Fantastic. Yeah, I can't believe I didn't mention that in my list. Karate Kid Two. I mean, come on. Yeah. yeah. Running you Scared. Know. Oh, sorry. What were you going to say? We're Karate Kid. Part no, two. no, no. Go ahead. Running Scared. Absolutely. You, you scared, one of, it's a great film that never got a sequel and should have gotten a sequel what were you gonna say man it's too bad it can't have a legacy sequel because we don't yeah. have gregory hines but but, gregory but, going, yeah. but like but what this really points out and i remember a couple of years ago we did a live show just on 80s comedies but it's yeah. just like yeah look at the look at what hollywood was giving you in 1986 yeah compared to what hollywood has given you we've got comedies and dramas and silly movies and dumb action movies and good action movies war movies romantic comedy heavy movies romantic comedies like we have yeah. and, and, and so many of them you yeah. know yeah, yeah you're absolutely right and we, we don't live in that world this is also the beginning of spike lee 1986 is she's got to have it that it comes out in 1986 she's got to have it which is kind of crazy to think about um extremities is also a film that i remember in the 1980s being a big deal because um, you know, it's Farrah Fawcett kind of coming into her own as an actress. She had a moment there with the burning bed and extremities where she could have possibly re-embraced being an A-list uh, actress there. You've got Stand By Me in 1986 as well, Steve. Not even nominated for Best Picture, yeah. which is kind of crazy uh, to think about. You also have the beginning of Jim Jarmusch with Down By Law, which I think is a, an interesting film if you like that filmmaker. Crocodile Dundee is 1986, for God's sakes. Um, two of my favorite guys coming together, Kurt Russell, Burt Lancaster, and one of my favorite 1980s films, Tough Guys, which are which are these guys that were put in prison in the 1940s. I love Tough Guys. Right? We, we should do a watch-along. We should do a watch-along of Tough Guys. I will 100% do a watch-along of Tough Guys. It, Kurt Russell, Burt Lancaster play these guys who went into, the, uh, went into prison in the 1950s for robbing a bank, uh, and then 30 years, or a train, I think, and 30 years later, they get out in the 1980s and have to acclimate to the world of the 1980s, who I thought was great. Peggy Sue Got Married, which features one of the first really great performances from Nicolas Cage and Kathleen Turner 
uh, being a you know kind of establishing herself a little bit more. An American Tale, which a lot of people love from 1986, uh, one of the great animated films there from the 1980s. Star Trek IV: The Voyage Home is 1986. Oh, Steve, for God's sake, are we sake. taking that long to mention that movie? I mean, <laughs> this is just it just blows me away how many as opposed to like right. when we do our you know we did our wrap up of 2023 and yeah. we listed you know we talked about 10 movies, 15 yeah. movies. Yeah, yeah, Here, yeah. A, a whole bunch of these. Many, many could be a cinephiles live or a cinephiles watch along, and a whole bunch could be a full show. Yeah, but yeah. by the way, I, I just want to point out one thing, which is the weird way that my my son absorbs the world. Yeah, because he absorbs the world through memes and through like weird TikTok videos, <laughs> and so he will come to me if 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 I'm in the kitchen and I'm using a knife, he will say to me. That's not a knife. This is a knife. <laughs> yeah. And he has no idea who Crocodile Dundee is. He doesn't know anything about them. He just knows that one thing because it's been played over and over again in memes. That's a meme. There you go. <laughs> I felt that way about Planet of the Apes. I, I, For years, I had just seen, you did it, you bastards, or whatever <laughs> he says, because that was the end of some CBS promo for movie of the week. And, yep. I, never, and I hadn't seen the, and I didn't see the film for many, many years afterwards. But yeah. Kind of how you do it. The last two I want to mention real quick is um, Little Shop of Horrors is also 1986, which I, is one movie. of my uh, quiet favorites. I know a lot of people love Three Amigos. That's not one of my favorites, but that's certainly there. And Heartbreak Ridge as well. So, yeah, I mean, just some an interesting year of movies with a lot of movies that I thoroughly love. I wouldn't say it's the strongest year in terms of like quality, quality films, but I think the films that we love, there's a lot of them in 1986 for those of us who grew up in the 80s for sure, Steve. Uh, absolutely. Well, and this is the, you know, and, I, and maybe this is part of why I'm, I think this is a great conversation to have mm. is that yes, on the cinephiles, our main job is to talk about great films. Yes. And I love great films and you love great films. hundred percent. But a lot of the time we're watching good films, you yes. know, we're just yeah. like a fun movie like yeah. that's so, so I have been not as good lately at watching the movies I've been supposed to watch mm. and I have been watching. So I, I, I watched lethal weapon one and lethal weapon two, and now halfway into lethal weapon three. And I've got, you know what I mean? Like I've got a bunch of, yeah, and I think lethal yourself. weapon, the first one is fantastic. Agreed. Um, many people like the second one better. Those people are wrong. Um, <laughs> and then they just get sillier, but it's like, sometimes you want to watch movies cause they're comfortable because yeah. they make you happy. And you yeah. could acknowledge their fault flaws. They don't have to be a great film yeah. to be a film that you love. And I think that's really important to continue to remind ourselves yes. on the set files. I think you're hundred percent right. I don't know how many times I am looking for another film because I have to watch it for, uh, uh, for our show or for a review or something that I'm doing. And I stumble upon some of these older films that I've never seen. I'm like, God, I want to see these films. So I've kind of slowly been coming around this idea. I know I've seen these uh, videos from other people, like first time watching this movie, first time watching that yeah. movie. And I'm considering doing that on Sundays. Um, first time watching oh. whatever, and just recording myself watching a movie for the first time and then putting it up on, on the channel. So um, we'll see. I mean, having someone edit it is, is a pretty penny with a long movie, but the possibility is there. I'll just put up the video of me with the audio and people can watch along with the time code. And, you know, whatever, whoever watches it, watches it. I never put stuff up on Sundays anyway. So it could, I've been, I've been thinking of doing that as a way to motivate me to watch these films, as you said, Steve, to yeah. like explore new ones, but also rewatch some ones that I hadn't seen in a long time that I thoroughly love. You know, this is a great point you bring up, brother. Um, Wayne Edwards says, uh, I have a complicated relationship with Scorsese. He is one of the greats, but some of the films leave me numb. So being inspired by you guys, I'm going to watch every Scorsese film 
starting at who's knocking at my door. Oh, wow. Okay. So first of all, Wayne, you have defined for us what the cinephiles audience is. is that the cinephile, yes. It's like, because to, to some degree, and, and what it is for me to be a cinephile for John is like going, I have a mixed relationship with this filmmaker. Yeah. Sometimes they leave me numb. Therefore, I'm going to watch every single one of his films. <laughs> like that, most people, most normal people, sorry, Wayne, I don't mean to say that you're not normal, but you're one of us. You're one of most us. Most people go like, this filmmaker leaves me numb. I will never watch one of his films again. You're yeah. going the opposite way. That's what, I mean, that's what, I'm sure, I know you've done this. In fact, you you know, kind of did that on The Color of Money. Not a big fan of the movie. Mm -hmm. Decide to watch it again yeah. to see yeah. what what's there. That's, that's the sign of a true cinephile, Wayne. One and, of us. and you need to let us know, one of us, <laughs> you need to let us know how your journey goes. I want yeah. you to check in with us as you go yeah. through this and tell us what your reactions to these films are. 100%. 100%. Um, Giant B says, I just want to say thank you to the both of you for this fantastic channel slash podcast. And as others have mentioned, each episode worth their weight in gold. Oh, thanks. See that, that counters, uh, which I appreciate that counters, um, a comment we got earlier, uh, here at some, uh, Carl, Carl, Carlos and geez, Roca is annoying. Has he done Coke or something? So, you know, it's nice to know there are other people who appreciate what we do and there are people who don't. And have negative things to say. And I, you know, I want to say I've I've kind of turned over a new leaf in 2024 over the last, I mean, the, the Lady Outlaw was away for seven days, and I had a lot of time with myself to kind of talk to myself and look at my life and look at things that are going on and kind of reanalyzing some of these uh battles I've had with people. And I've decided that I'm done being talked, like getting into battles and fighting with people online, fighting with people on YouTube, fighting with people on Twitter. I'm still gonna have my opinions, my points of views. But I think I'm going to create more grace for when people come at me with negative comments and negative stuff, I'm not going to immediately look to embarrass them or put them down or shame them. I'm either going to ignore it, block them, or mute them, or I'm going to respond in a way going, I appreciate your point of view, I don't agree, or I'm sorry you feel that way about me, but I'm going to continue doing the things that I'm doing because I want to keep doing the things I'm doing, I'm happy doing the things that I'm doing. And I think I've wasted too much time over the last few years getting into these fights, and it was affecting my mental health. And I went into a really bad place, I think Thursday while she was gone. And I, you know, and I came close again. And so it was like that kind of stuff is, is, uh, is, um, can get to you. And I realized I can't let things get to me to that point anymore. I've got to enjoy my place in the world, respect my place in the world, be happy with my place in the world, be happy with things that I'm doing. And so if some people think I sound like I'm on Coke, that's your opinion, but I'm going to keep doing the things that I'm doing because I love doing it. I'm very uh, lucky as I see other people being laid off, other people losing their jobs. I'm very lucky I can make a living doing the thing that I love. So if I, offend, if I offend some people because I just enjoy doing it or I get too excited about something, that's the price I don't mind paying for the things that I love to do. So just wanted to say that because uh, normally I would put that that comment up and destroy this person. And I'm realizing I don't need to do that anymore. So I just wanted to say that out loud somewhere. So I hope you don't oh, mind. Man. I, 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 I'm really glad you shared that. And the I'm very impressed and proud of the way you handled that and the, People who do who send in those kinds of comments don't get like that yeah. we're humans here. And and what's so hard, you know, you talk about being an artist is like the job is to express truth. Yeah. You, yeah. you can't express truth if you're scared of what the consequences or the reactions or things like that. And you, you know, the thing I've learned from you and always admired is you're going to say your truth. Yeah. You know? 
Yeah. Like that's, yeah. that's, and the reason I think that people tune into the show is to hear that truth. And, and yeah. this is the thing. And oh, it's just, sure. just, yeah. you know, it's like, we're not all put here to agree with each other. Yeah. It's okay. If we don't agree, it's yeah. okay. If we, I mean, how all of us say things that are just kind of like, Oh, uh, you know, that went too far. I shouldn't have said that we all have those right. things. Right, right, right. And, and yet with this internet, it's like, there's someone who's like going to come at you for that one fucking thing that you said. So I, I, I hope that it gives you more peace, this new way of approaching right. things because you deserve it because this is, you know, you're doing good work and you haven't been hurt by people that are watching. is just not fucking cool. I, I, I agree. And you know what to, 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 and I take my part in it. I take my blame in it as well because I engaged in it and I fermented it and I, you know, uh, took part in it. And so for that, I, that's what I'm looking at myself. Like I'm no longer going to post stuff just to purposely cause battles or purposely cause derision because I'm working through stuff. So those are the things that I'm changing as well. So if people are going to come at me, they're going to come at me, but I've uh, my in, I'm endeavoring to, as I said, either ignore, mute, block, or just respond in a different way that leads to a different conversation. And if they're going to keep making fun, then let them make fun. There's nothing I can do about that. That's between them and their creator, and it's not my business anymore. So I think releasing that has been a very cathartic thing for me. And I don't know why it took me two years to finally come to a place like that, but we all have our journeys, man. And so it's just time for me to do it because there's too many positive things in my life, including our show, including our friendship, including what I have with the lady outlaw to allow strangers to destroy me mentally to the point where I would consider taking my life again. And I don't ever want to do that again. So it's like, that's the things that I'm trying to navigate through. And I think there's, you know, it connects back to the movie, right? I mean, I see fast Eddie ha in a way he's just going through the motions. He's doing the things that he's doing, but by the end of the film, he re-embraces his life after he gets embarrassed by this guy. It isn't because he beats this guy. It's because he gets embarrassed by this guy and he realizes I've hit my rock bottom. I can't live my life this way anymore. I have to make changes. So in a way, the film kind of spoke to me in that way to kind of inspire the thing I just said here as well, uh, seeing his journey by the end, you know? It's such a hard thing going like, because you, you get hit with a thing and you're upset. And I've had them too, where someone has come at me for something really? that I said, particularly when I was doing the Star Trek show. I got so oh, many God. more, yeah, whenever the Star Trek show, and I got it from the left and the right, because yeah, I'm yeah. trying to be very down the middle. And so the left was saying, you're, you're being too, you know, you're really, you're betraying us. And the right is saying that you're a liberal person and it's getting you in both directions. And I take that in and I like, for hours or days, I'm like stewing on that and how to respond to it. And I, you know, and you know me, it's like, yeah. I don't lash out. I'll stew right. and just take right. it for a long time and then try to come up with some way to respond that isn't lashing out. But th that takes its toll on me too. Yeah. And the, and the, and the thing about it is like, and this is what I love about you connecting it with the movie is what does it matter? Like, right. okay, that person had that opinion yeah. and they said that thing. The only person hurting me with that opinion is me yes. by focusing on it. Yes. There's not, that's just a thing that some dude said, like they, right. people say shit all the time. Right. Well, and, and this, I remember, you know, I mean, you know, obviously about this horrible breakup I had with a friend mm. and it was one of the things that was so painful was they kept telling me and telling our friends this is why Steve Morris did what he did. This is what Steve Morris's intentions are. This is, and I, and I knew I've never had those thoughts. Like that's right. not why I did, but I couldn't get past that. Someone who I thought was supposed to care about me thought all these terrible things about me that weren't true. And it took me, I don't know, 
a couple of years at least hmm. to go, I know it's not true. Right. Right. I don't need, you know, I assume, you know, whether or not you are on Coke today and you know, you <laughs> yeah, don't have to tell me it's fine. It's like, it's like, I know what I'm doing. I know what my intention is, you know, like, and, and yet someone else telling you your intention or what's going on with you can make you go like, it yeah. can fuck you up until you can go. That's just, that's just what they said. Who cares? Yep. yep. And that's, the, that's where we want to get to for sure. Well, thank you guys for listening to us. Let's wrap up with these last two uh, uh, super chats. I'm sorry if we lost some of you as we're getting those conversations. But Carlton Rudder says, favorite quote of Paul Newman, the embarrassing thing is that my salad dressing is outgrossing my films. <laughs> <laughs> but that was the gift of Paul Newman. He was he was the superstar A-list actor who wanted to be respected for his abilities as an actor, right? He couldn't choose being born beautiful or good-looking or handsome or whatever. That's just the way it goes. But he didn't want to be seen as just a commodity. He wanted to be seen as an actor's actor. And that was something he endeavored to do. And I'm sure, uh, and I know by the, you know, the over the last few years of his life when he was doing some of these incredible movies, like The Verdict, which we will eventually get to, um, you got to see that come through as in his performances, Stephen. I think this is another example of that in this movie for sure. I agree a hundred percent. I think I was just thinking more about his salad dressing. I was like, well, which of his products do I really like the most? I used a salad. He had a Caesar salad dressing. I used a lot. Yeah. And then I also used his microwave popcorn. I enjoyed that. I, yes. I, yes. It's good stuff. <laughs> it was good stuff. Carlton Rudder says, John, you are amazing at what you do. If you have no enemies, you have no character. Paul Newman. Oh, that's a Paul Newman quote. That's a nice that's quote. Great. Steve is also amazing. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Thank you, Carlton. Thank you, John. <laughs> Um, all right, well, let's wrap it up there, brother man. I don't think there's anything else uh, we need to say about the film. We've talked about it and we've enjoyed uh, you all's points of views. Thank you again, Wiley. Uh, and um, sorry, let me see. Thank you again to Wiley, Carlton Rudder, Wayne Edwards, and JMB, who sent us in Streamlabs and Super Chats throughout the show. Thanks to everybody who watched uh, the show here. Please make sure you hit a like on the video, subscribe to the channel, leave your comments on everything we talked about in the color of money and of course subscribe to our cinephiles uh, uh, podcast that is available on all podcast platforms and if you want to support the show you can head on over to patreon.com slash the cinephiles and pick a tier that works for you and there's so many benefits that are there as well and steve one final what are the announcements what are final things that we should say to these people to get them inspired to join us on the patreon or to be part of our show well, the new inspiration today is that you can deal, if you don't feel like dealing with Patreon, if you're an Apple person, top to bottom, you've got all of, they've got all your credit card info, you buy apps from them, you buy songs from them. Well, now, as of right now, you can subscribe to the Cinephiles podcast through Apple, where you get ad-free versions of the show. Soon, hopefully, it will be the entire catalog ad-free, as well as our uh, Cinephile shorts. We announced what one of our shorts is going to be coming up very soon, yeah. and you will have access to those through Apple Podcasts. One sign up, you could do it four ninety nine a month or forty nine ninety nine for a year. That is a fantastic deal. And of course, you could also buy or stream uh, the Color of Bunny along with every other movie we've ever reviewed at cinephiles.net. And you could reach me at SR Morris on Twitter or SR Morris One on Instagram. You can find me at the Roca says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as well, and the Outlaw Nation on Twitch, my YouTube channel, where I do all the shows that I have there, you, uh, other shows that I have there, youtube.com slash John Roca says. And Steve, we have an advisory board tomorrow at one o'clock. Just a reminder for those of you who are on the advisory board, our uh, meeting is at one o'clock tomorrow. Do not forget. Um, all right. Thanks so much for watching us, and we'll talk to you next time with another brand new live monthly episode of the Cinephiles Live 
here on the Cinephiles YouTube channel. For my partner, Steve Morris, I'm John Roca. Take care until then.